Okay. So first Timothy six, let's go to chapter or chapter six, verse three. First Timothy six, verse three. It says if anyone teaches otherwise, this is contrary to scripture and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine, which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, I just want to focus on that last phrase where it says, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This is one characteristic of what Paul defines as people who are proud and know nothing, who are men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. So obviously this is a pretty serious category of person we're talking about. And he says one of the characteristics is this supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I'm sure you guys have heard that it's, it's, it's very easy to, come to this extreme, that if you begin with the premise, which is true, that God desires that you prosper and defined, that means that you have success, fruitfulness, and abundance in everything that you do to accomplish his will for your life. That's what prospering is biblically. What that turns into, if you're not careful, is what many of us have heard as the prosperity gospel, which is basically a, the idea that Prosperity is so overemphasized that it becomes about you getting what you want and that God blessing you just because he loves you. And yes, he blesses you because he loves you, but it becomes so humanistic and self-focused that it, it turns into godliness being a means of gain, which is what this verse is talking about. And this is what, it, what it's rebuking. Godliness is not a means of gain. This is any kind of gain. This isn't just money. It can even be spiritual gifts if you're not careful. You get to a point where you think your relationship with God is about you getting something from him. This is the dangerous key here. That if you think your relationship with God is as is important as long as you get something from him, then you're not in worship. You're not surrendered to God. You're not actually putting saving faith in Christ, really. There's a verse in 1 John 5 that says we love him, or we love, if you look at it in, in the original Greek, it says we love because he first loved us. And that the love that we show to others is supposed to flow from the love that he has shown to us, which means your relationship with God is supposed to be this constant directional flow from God to the world, which means that God loves you, he gives, he blesses, he empowers and equips you, and that flows out of you to the world. But there's a lot of believers that let it stop right here as soon as it hits them, which is, it's about me, what I want, I want to be blessed, and then relationship with God is about pleading for him to give you something. And it's an error, a very dangerous evil to think that godliness is a means of gain, any kind of gain. So if you walking righteously, walking in godliness, pleasing God, reading the word, maintaining relationship with him, if in your mind that is about what you get from him, 
that in itself is a characteristic, like I said, or like the word says, of knowing nothing, being proud, having a corrupt mind, and destitute of the truth. So avoid that. At all costs, avoid that. So if you read into the next verses, it says, verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So don't think your godliness is a means of gain, but remember when you're walking godly and are content in Christ, that is great gain. In other words, everything you could really ever want or desire is really wrapped up in simply being like Christ, knowing him and being content with that. That's all it is. You'll find that some of the happiest people you will ever meet in terms of the church are those who have a vibrant relationship with God. They're in love with him and they're content with, with just that. And the way you know they're content with just that is that any circumstance could come upon them and it does not steal their joy. They stay, they stay joyful. They stay content. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He said, I know how to be abased, how to abound, how to suffer need, and also how to prosper. He was talking about that whether I'm poor or rich, sick or healthy, regardless of the circumstance, I'm content. Whatever state I'm in, to be content. That is great gain because it means you need nothing from the world and you believe that, or you know that God doesn't owe you anything in addition to that. So there's nothing that you need to have other than what you already have, which is Christ, in order for you to be content and you to be happy. That is great gain. Because when you think about all the efforts that people go to and the way that they exhaust and expend themselves to gain more is always about what do I need next to make me happy? That's how people in the world live right? But if you're happy, severed from the world in the sense that you're severed from sin, evil, darkness, and the devil, and all that you need and could ever want or desire is Christ, and you're happy with that, that's joy, and that is great gain. Because if you realize that gaining is really about gaining the happiness, because that's what the world is trying trying to get, right? The happiness. If you know you already have that, you have already what the world is seeking without the loss or the cost that the world suffers from, which is to gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? So we have to start there. In terms of how we manage our resources, you have to start with that. Anything that I have or receive from God, whether material or spiritual, is not about God giving so that I remain happy with him because he's already gave, given his son and that should be all that I need. What it's about is him giving to me so that in my contentment, I don't demand anything from him, but in turn, take what he's given and distribute it liberally to the world. The flow is so, supposed to always be moving outward from God to you, from you to the world, everything that you receive, whether it's money, whether it's the prosperity of your soul your joy, your peace, your love, all of that is from God to you and from you to the world, which is really God through you to the world. We have to start there, which means God is your provider. Exactly. Yep, Jehovah Jireh, one of his names, God who provides. He's your provider. You have to see him as your provider. 
So that means that this is another key understanding. Anything that you have, as if we're talking about money, really does not belong to you. Ultimately, it's his. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the Bible says. So if everything you have or you could receive ultimately belongs to him, then you are a steward of someone else's resources and goods. Christ, who is the Lord, or you could even say landlord, if you will, has made you a steward or servant over his substance. And he has left to a far country in parable, right? He ascended to heaven. He's going to return one day to receive his substance back, which you are supposed to be stewarding. And if he's coming or returning to receive back what you were steward over, then that means you have to maintain an attitude your whole life that nothing you have is really yours. Otherwise, you start to idolize it. This is really important because if you imagine, like, for example, let's say uh, if we take this space because we, we lease this space, we rent this space. Now, if we started thinking, oh, this is ours or this is mine. And then the landlord would come to us and say, hey, you know, your lease is up, the agreement's over, I'm going to turn this space over to somebody else. And we just replied and said, what, what, you can't do that, this is ours. It's completely illogical, because you don't lease or rent space, and then make it your own, it ultimately belongs to the Lord, right, of this space. And we know that that's illogical, but then in terms of what we have in this world, in our own lives, we, we think that way, illogically, in relationship to what we have, because when something's taken from us or something's lost or God produces change in our lives and we get all antsy and perturbed and frustrated, worried over all that, what we're really saying is that we're mad at God for taking what we thought was ours when it was never ours to begin with. So how can you grieve over the loss of something that was never yours? The only way that that grief can overtake you is if you believe it's yours. So that's why you read in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says that you can rejoice over the plundering of your own goods because you know you have a greater possession in heaven. That's the attitude we're supposed to maintain. Do you have a comment? Sure. Go for it. <laughs> I, I, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> so what we have is not ours to begin with. You're a steward over what belongs to Christ. Anything that is given or taken. I'm not, I'm not using the Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, taketh away. I'm not using that verse. That's a different context. What I'm talking about here is that anything you have because God gave or anything that's lost because even if we say the devil stole or circumstances rob you of something. However it happens, God's good, the devil's bad. So we're not blaming God for anything that's taken from you. But what I am saying is that anything that is given or taken by whomever, regardless of why, is not to lead to your ultimate joy or grief, which means anything that God gives shouldn't be your joy. It's God himself that is your joy. And anything that's taken should not be your grief because it's not yours to begin with. Amen? Including your body. Exactly. So we can't make anything an idol. In fact, the Bible says that covetousness is idolatry. One of the first commandments in the Ten Commandments is, well, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And the second is you can't make for yourself or don't, you shall not make for yourself any carbon image. Idolatry is the number one thing that God has said is most important. And covetousness itself, the Bible says in Colossians, is idolatry. So wanting something, idolizing something, making it your desire, your joy, or your grief if it, if it is lost, that is covetousness, which is idolatry. So that's why Jesus in Luke 16 says, you can't be entrusted with the true riches if you're not faithful with the unrighteous man. In other words, your money, your material resources, if you can't be faithful with that, you cannot be entrusted with the true riches. In other words, if you can't get the covetousness issue dealt with, then you'd be in idolatry, and therefore you're not surrendered to Christ at all. So your relationship to money, ultimately, is step one. If you can't get that relationship right, then we can't be entrusted with the true riches, which is anything in, in, in the kingdom of God, ultimately. Yes. It, yeah, it is not your life to begin with. It's his life in you. I mean, Paul's whole statement in Galatians 2.20 was, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? So it's really not about your life anymore. It's about his life in you. It's about him living through you. So give it all to him. Yep. Exactly. Okay, so let's continue in 1 Timothy 6. So where we left off. 1 Timothy 6. 7. Thank you. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So why waste your time on things you can't take out of this world with you? And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Whereas if you have clothes on your back and you have food to eat, be content with that. Don't be greedy for anything else. You don't need anything else. Now, this does not mean... I won't get into that right now. You know exactly where this is going. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. For this reason, the love of money, people have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. To stray from the faith implies you had to be in the faith formerly. So this is one of the enemy's strategies. I think this is actually maybe, maybe, the number one thing that the devil has used to cause believers in the West to stray from the faith because of opulence, luxury. It's a wealthy nation. It's a wealthy country. And he says, if you desire to be rich, you fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts. Now, later he talks about what to do if you are wealthy because what happens is we take this verse out of context and say, okay, this means it's against God's will to have money, and then we demand everyone be poor. And that's not what it's trying to say. He addresses what you do if you do have money in the next few verses, which we'll get into momentarily. But to start with, he's saying the snare, the temptation that drowns you and pierces you with many sorrows. 
is the desire to be rich. The love of money. Right. I actually, this, I'm going to look something up, a Greek word here that just came to mind. Verse 10. Okay. Avarice. Yeah. Excessive desire for material things. Love of money. Do not desire to be rich. The goal should not be to become wealthy. That's not the goal. Now, what do you do if you have money, number one? And secondly, is there wrong in pursuing greater wealth for what we might say a good cause for the sake of the kingdom? That's what he addresses next. So, verse 11. He says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life kind of seems, actually a lot of Christians don't think about this, but it kind of seems counterintuitive. In other words, if eternal life is a free gift and God sustains us in our faith and ensures that we make it to heaven, if you will, then why are we commanded ourselves to lay hold on eternal life, which means to grab it and not to let go? Why are we commanded to grab it and not let go, to be tenacious in our pursuit of it if God's the one who does it all for us? Because that's something we have to do. Endure to the end and you'll be saved, Jesus said. In other words, your faith endures to the end. That's something that's on us. So if you keep reading, to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. I just love that description of Jesus. That is awesome. Verse 17. This is where it gets into instructions to those who are wealthy. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, this is where he says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy, which means he wants you to enjoy your life. If you want to look into that more, just read the book of Ecclesiastes, because it basically says, everything's meaningless, and since it's all going to pass away anyway, anyway, you might as well enjoy it while you can. This is not a you only live once, just live to have fun type theology, okay? That's not the point of Ecclesiastes. The point is, the end of the matter in chapter uh, 13 of Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, it says, is fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. Then it says, but there's nothing better in this present life than to be happy and do good while you live and to enjoy the fruit of all your labor, because that is a reward under the sun that God has given you. The point is that your goal should be to fear God and keep his commandments. But while you have work and labor in this life and there's fruit from it, which is ultimately money, Enjoy it. In other words, don't be a Ebenezer Scrooge humbug, right? He's saying, enjoy what God gives you. You have permission and God's pleasure to enjoy what he gives you. But 
don't desire it, don't pursue those riches, but enjoy what you have. That's the point. Does that make sense? With contentment. Yep. Okay, so then he says, verse 18, let them do good. This is if you have money. Now, just real quick before we keep reading, pretty much everyone in the United States, I would imagine everyone in this room at least, is by this definition, rich. A lot of us don't think about that. Because when we think of rich, we think of, you know, the guy who has the yacht and 10 houses and whatever. That's not what he's talking about. To, to be rich simply, it, it's most basic definition to be rich or wealthy is to have excess over need, abundance. More than what you need is really what wealth is. So after you have your own clothes and food and your family's provided for, anything above and beyond that is wealth. That's really what it means to be rich, ultimately. So he's kind of talking to all of us. Command those who are rich, those who have excess over need, don't be haughty, don't trust in money. But trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. In other words, he's trying to say, you trusting in God doesn't mean God is going to make you poor. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, his whole point is that God does want you to enjoy what he's given you to enjoy in this world. So don't think that God's trying to rob you of all the money. Serving God is not a call to poverty. Poverty, That's true. Yeah. Okay. Verse 18. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, this is where he brings up lay hold on eternal life again. This is interesting. He attaches you enduring in your faith to what you do with your money. Because he just commanded Timothy... Lay hold on eternal life. Grab eternal life and don't let go. Make sure you hang on until this life is done. And he's attaching that same command to what you do with your money. Now, we're going to break this down word by word so you guys understand why. In other words, if you have money, if you have above what you need after you've provided for you and your own household, it says do good and be rich in good works. So more important than being rich in resources or material things is being rich in good works. In other words, we're supposed to be known as followers of Jesus for the wealth of the good works that are in our lives, not the wealth of what we have in terms of money. So if a person were to talk about you knowing you, they should be able to say and know you, assuming that you're wealthy, not for the money that you have, but for how rich you are in generosity, good works. And how you're serving Christ. How God is healing and giving and saving through you. That's supposed to be our reputation. Be rich in good works. That's the command. Now this is interesting because typically when there's somebody who has a lot of money. And this is people within the church. It's very common to think that the responsibility that you have if you're in the church and have money is to just give more money to the church. And you think that's what fulfills your Christian obligation or responsibility, but that's not being rich in good works. That's you giving to other people who you think should be rich in good works. You personally being rich in good works means you do the work of the kingdom. You take responsibility for the great commission as an individual, and you can use your money 
in your own life to fulfill that purpose. This does not mean you being rich in good, good works is giving more money to the church. That's not the point. If you're giving to a sound and solid community, hey, that's a good thing to do. But in your own life, as an individual, be rich in good works first. That's the command. So then he says, ready to give and willing to share. The way that you can ensure that you don't fall away from trust in God and then get into trusting in riches or uncertain riches, he says, is to make sure you stay generous. If you are always ready to give and willing to share, you are demonstrating to yourself that you don't put your trust in money. And the thing is, you can be trusting in your money whether you are poor or rich. It really doesn't matter the dollar amount. The point is that if, uh, as I've heard it said before, you get all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. (laughs) If that's all you do with your money, you're trusting in it. So just like this is all over the Bible, God, for whatever reason, there is a reason for it, but he has always made a habit of telling his people part of serving him is giving things away. He starts with your own life. Then in the Old Testament, he says, offer your grain, offer animals from your herds, offer your wine and your oil, your flour, your own bread, everything that they ever had. The Israelites in the Old Testament, he said, you have to make regular offerings and sacrifices out of it. A lot of people don't actually think about that in the Old Testament, if you factor in all of the laws and commandments, it was actually about 23% of what the Israelites had that was to be given to the tabernacle, the temple, the work of the Levites and the priests. So it's interesting that number one, he's having them give away that much. And he even brought it down to the point of every sixth year or seventh year, they were not to sow seed or reap or to sow seed at all in the sixth year, excuse me. So when the sixth year came every sixth year, he said, don't plant in your fields. So when the harvest comes around, let the, let the land rest. So when the harvest comes around, you have to trust that the harvest from the sixth year will be enough to carry you through the seventh. So I, I said that wrong. Excuse me. Year seven, the land is to rest. Don't sow. You have to trust that in the sixth year, I will give you enough out of your harvest to sustain you through the seventh. So he, he wanted to prove their trust in him so much to the point that you had to basically quit your job, if you will. For a whole year and trust that the previous year, he would provide you with what you needed for the following year. That was just one thing he did for the Israelites. This doesn't mean you quit your job for a year. I'm not saying that. (laughs) So there was that. That was called the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year where the land would rest. And then you had to make regular offerings of your food, your animals. And especially like (laughs) if you sinned a lot, (laughs) you had to make a lot of animal sacrifices. Okay which back then pretty much everyone sinned a lot. I shouldn't say back then. People today do the same thing, really. But it just without being born again, you couldn't be filled with the Holy Spirit, none of that. So there, there was no new life in Christ. So there was a lot of sin, a lot of animals that had to be sacrificed. So people had, had to sacrifice a lot out of what they had. And part of the reason God did that was for them to prove their trust. God did it with Abraham. Sacrifice your own son whom you love. He repeats it three times. The, the son that you love, yes, that one. The one that's your beloved, the one you love so much, yes. They're not talking about Ishmael, talking about Isaac, right? Sacrifice your beloved son Isaac. And the whole reason God did that is because he wanted to test Abraham's faith to see whether he trusted in him or not. 
And so the reason why he says always be ready to give and willing to share is because the pattern throughout scripture has been the way you keep yourself protected from trust in uncertain riches, from covetousness and greediness, which drowns you in sorrow is to keep giving, to keep sacrificing, to keep sowing into the world and trusting that God will provide you with what you need. That's supposed to be the pattern. That's how you stay away from idolatry in terms of the unrighteous mammon or money. The only way to make sure you don't make money an idol is to give it away. Just how it works. If you don't like that, you got a bone to pick with God, but that's what's in scripture. That's what we're called to do. Be ready to give and willing to share. So if you keep going, verse 19, again, store up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come. So he says, here's why you should be rich in good works. Here's why you need to be ready to give and willing to share. To store up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come, you may lay hold on eternal life. Now, being ready to give and willing to share does not mean that you give to all the charities and orphanages that you can possibly think of. Rich in good works means the works of the kingdom, the works that God wants you to do. So being a giver and sharing is about giving to the work of the kingdom. Now, this, of course, means visiting the orphan and the widow in their distress. This, of course, means taking care of people that are struggling, the poor, the needy. That's, of course, that, of course, is implied. But in Galatians, it says, do good to all, but especially those who are of the household of faith. Jesus said, if you see a brother in need, another believer, a believing person, and you have this world's good, goods and withhold it from your brother, you're doing exactly that to Christ. In a parable in uh, Matthew 25, Jesus said that if you see a brother in need, one of the least of these little ones, my brethren, Jesus said, and you don't clothe the naked, don't feed the poor or feed the hungry. Don't give drink to those who are thirsty. He's saying you're doing that to me is what Jesus said. And he's talking about his brother. And that means people within the church, the household of faith, the family of God were to do good to them first, the Bible says, especially those who are of the household of faith and do good to all. So your number one priority in terms of your giving, practically speaking, is to the people within the family of God. The poor, the needy, the broken, the widow, the orphan inside the church, not inside a religious institution, but who are disciples of Jesus. That always comes first. Just like you would prioritize the needs of your own family, your own household. God wants his household, his church to prioritize the needs of his household. That's just how it works. Of course, if your kids were starving and you're giving all your money to somebody else, that would be a problem. God's the same way. If inside the church, his people are starving and we're just giving to a bunch of random charities, something's wrong. Take care of people inside his family first. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay. So, then, if you think about good works as the work of the kingdom for his church first and his family, his household, be willing, ready to give, willing to share in that context so that you store up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come. This is not talking about a robust savings account. This is talking about the time to, time to come in terms of eternal life, which would be when this age or this life comes to a close and we step into eternity. He says part of you laying a foundation for your eternity is what you do with your money here. This is interesting because 
You don't think about eternity as something you have to lay a foundation for. But 1 Corinthians 3 actually says you, you build in this life what something that carries into eternity. And it talks about the works that you do. So if you use your money here for his work and are generous in it, you are laying a foundation for your, for your eternity. So the, what your experience will be when we are united with Christ for eternity and this life is over is going to in part depend on what you did with your time, your resources and your life here. So what does this mean to lay a good foundation or store up a good foundation? Um, I would like to go to Matthew chapter six to address that. This is the last scripture we're going to look at. Matthew six, and we will start in verse 19. This is a cross reference. It's really good to mark down. If you're taking notes next to first Timothy six, this is a good passage to write down alongside it. Matthew chapter six, verse 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also. You've heard this verse a lot. Most people are so concerned about storing up treasure for this life because they're afraid of some apocalypse, right? There's other reasons why a person might do that. But if you're so concerned about storing up treasure for this life, what might happen in this life, none of that you're going to carry into eternity with you. Moth and rust will destroy it all. It'll all be burned up with fervent heat, the Bible says. So you're supposed to be laying up treasure in heaven. Now, this is where it gets confusing for some people because you're like, okay, so God wants me to be giving and rich in good works and sharing, and he wants me to have an abundance for every good work. So how do I use my money to produce something that's eternal? And it's really pretty simple if you just think about it. This is why in 1 Timothy 6, he says, don't be rich, known for being rich in money. Be known for being rich in good works. So if you go to Luke 16, we don't have to turn there right now. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous mammon. If you read just basically the whole chapter of Luke 16 is all about money. So I'd encourage you guys to read that in your own time. It says, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous mammon so that when you fail, which means when you die, th those friends will receive you into an everlasting habitation. It's talking about if you use your money to win people to the kingdom of God and they end up with Christ and you die, it says they will welcome you into eternity and it'll be a celebration. That's the whole point. Use your money to make friends for and of the kingdom. This doesn't mean use your money so that a bunch of people like you. This is saying use your money to, to win friends to the kingdom of God. That's the point. So people will know Christ. Now, it's, it's really pretty simple practically when you break it down, but the point is being rich in good works is about the abundance that you have, uh, using the abundance that you have to create opportunity and access to people's lives for the purpose of leading them to Jesus. I'll get to that. 
And when that happens, you're actually using something material and turning it into, into something eternal, something temporary. You're turning it into something eternal. So money is valuable because it's one of the things that Jesus specifically said allows you to create treasure in heaven. True riches, right? True riches. So you get, there's two questions here. What's an example, like Jacob asked, of what this looks like? Number two, what's treasure in heaven? Because if Luke 16, Jesus says, this is about friends, one to the kingdom that receive you into eternity, then it must at least mean people. Because if you ask yourself, this is a question I'm going to pose to you guys, what is the only thing that actually will outlast this life and carry into eternity? What's the only thing you can bring to heaven with you? <laughs> Your dog. Yeah, people, but specifically what about people? Their soul, their spirit, yes, we all get a glorified body after that. But when you really break it down, it's, it's a simple answer. The only thing you bring to etern into eternity with you is other people. Your own soul and the souls of others. And, and that's his inheritance, right? That is it. That's all you're going to bring to heaven with you. So all that matters is what? Souls. People. That's it. <laughs> what if you don't like people? Then you got a bigger problem. <laughs> this is so, it's so common. Like I can't tell you how many times, and I'm sure you've all, you either have been one of these people yourself or you know people who are like this, where the only thing they live for is to work so that they have money so that they can retire and avoid people. Really, it's, Step over as many people as you can to get to what you think is comfortable so that you can avoid all the hardships, difficulties, and discomforts and inconveniences of having to deal with people. Exactly. This is a huge problem because there's so many Christians that live for this too. It's just, I want to work so that I have a better weekend and so that I have a better retirement and so that life is peaceful without complications and people always attach complications to people and relationships with people. And so we just try to avoid people. Right. That's actually, that's a great point. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a relationship. It was people. It was, it was persecution, but I won't get into that right now because that's a, that's another big can of worms. But the point is all that matters is people. So you're supposed to be using your money to create more relationships that lead into more people's relation, people forming relationships with Christ because those souls that are one to the father and to the kingdom will carry into eternity with you. That's the only thing you can bring into forever. Only thing you can bring into heaven. So we have to be mindful of that. So that's how you store up treasure in heaven. And you can use treasure on earth to store up treasure in heaven. That's why it says being rich in good works is laying a foundation for eternity. Every single person that you lead to Christ is part of this foundation that you lay. The Bible talks about how people are like are the believers, the saints, are like stones, living stones in God's temple or his church. The more people that we lead to Jesus, the more that they're added to this foundation that we carry into eternity. That is the foundation. It's, it's souls. It's, it's people specifically. So if you, if you imagine this, like stones in a foundation, you guys have probably seen cement foundations before, that these blocks that are put into a foundation. Imagine every one of those stones as a person. And that's what you're building. You're building a foundation that's going to be with you in, in eternity. And Jesus actually said that being faithful in this life is actually 
going to result in what he can entrust you with in eternity. So being faithful with souls here is going to translate into the kind of responsibility you'll be entrusted with in heaven. So keep that in mind. It's all that matters. So it's all about people. Be faithful with your finances because that's part of how you win friends to the kingdom. Don't become covetous. Don't be greedy for unrighteous mammon or for money. So what this comes down to then is what Jacob asked, the practical example. I think that we, we've, all, we've all seen this or experienced this before. Um, there was one time when, I mean, it's happened a couple times, but uh, one time I believe it was you and I both, Marcy, were there. We went to the mall and you bought a piece of jewelry that, yeah. So this is a great example. So one time Marcy and I were doing evangelism in a mall. I can't remember which mall it was. Um, Rosedale Mall. And Marcy had it on her heart to share Christ with this Somalian. You know? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So to buy jewelry. So long story short, her purchasing uh, actually quite expensive piece of jewelry earrings allowed her an opportunity to make a connection with the representative who was selling her the jewelry so that she could share Christ with him. A Somalian man. Yeah. Other examples would be every time that you decide, Hey, I want to go out to eat or like I was talking about with Jacob and I, we're going to become regulars at a restaurant, not so we can eat good food because the food really wasn't that great. <laughs> right. We went there for people. So we spent money on food to create a relationship that led to a person hearing about Jesus and a relationship that will continue. So it's really all about coming up with ways that you can spend money to create Christ-centered relationships. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it can be like, you don't have to over spiritualize it too. Like, it, you can, it can literally be, man, I just have a desire to go to the grocery store and, I don't know, buy just some kind of beverage or snack you're craving, right? Sure. You, you want to go to the gas station and you want to buy a Mountain Dew, okay? Now, if you think too carnally, you'll think it's all about the Mountain Dew. But God knows it's about the people surrounding the Mountain Dew. <laughs> that you could meet. It's all divine connection, right? It's about, it's really about being mindful of people around you. Instead of thinking about yourself, think about other people around you. That's the whole point. And using your money, using the unrighteous mammon to, to lay up true riches in heaven is about spending for good works. That's what it's about. And that's to God, what faithful stewardship is of your finances. 